Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. Uh, this is a podcast where we talk about books. It's a podcast where I talk about books with my mom, who's a librarian, who is Andrea. Uh, I'm a writer, sort of, whatever, I guess. Go to my Twitter account, you can look at my writing. I do want to before preemptively apologize because I might sound a little crummy on this episode because my allergies are acting up or maybe I have a cold. Uh, but let's just have a mucus situation of indeterminate origin that may or may not impact the quality of my uh, speech, sounds, voice. That's the word I'm looking for. All of those things. On this episode. Well, I think it's perfect because this is an episode where we talk about a monster and there's a lot of sort of diaphanous organic material that's flowing around. So it kind of fits the theme of what we're working on today. Yeah. So this is uh, for November. We're, you know, doing a little bit of like a, uh, I think I call it a coda to our Sandman series that we wrapped up a couple months ago. Uh, so for the, for the novella for this month, we're talking about The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman, writer of The Sandman. And then, you know, our next episode, we're going to do Sandman Overture for, for our comic, because we do, you know, a comic and a novella every month, uh, in case you were new and you want to know what the deal was with what this podcast is. So yeah, oh, The Ocean at the End of the Lane, that's what we're talking about. So it's... All Neil Gaiman all month long. Yeah, but it's still only two episodes. Like. Right. So let's get started. The Ocean at the End of the Lane is Neil Gaiman's novella, short novel, published in 2013. And do you want to talk a little bit about the synopsis, or do you want me to do it this time? I can do the synopsis. All right. I'm going to do the synopsis, and then I'll outline my three takes on this. Are they hot? Lukewarm? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know anymore. I can't tell what temperature takes are anymore. My my brain is poisoned by the internet. Okay. Well, let's let's get to the synopsis. <laughs> okay. So, the main character is uh, initially presented to us as a middle-aged man, presumably based on Gaiman himself, who is attending a funeral and decides he needs to get away. And so he ends up driving back towards his childhood home, which has been demolished, I think. Yes. And he wanders over towards a neighboring farm owned by the hemp stocks and has an extended flashback as he remembers the summer he spent with his friend Letty Hempstock. Uh, and a bunch of fantastical things happen over the course of that summer. Specifically, what happens is a South African opal miner comes to stay with his family and then kills himself to get out of gambling debts. Uh, then that guy's spirit summons some sort of extra-dimensional creature which begins to torment the neighborhood by giving them money, but in weird and unpleasant ways. And then... Letty, who is mysterious and powerful, and so are her family, uh, works together with the protagonist, who never is never named at any point, right? No, he isn't. They work together to banish this being, but he breaks 
one of the rules. This is like a fairy tale magic rules story that Neil Gaiman loves. He breaks one of the rules and ends up providing through his own body a path for the being to travel to his world. Which initially appears as a parasitic worm that he removes from its foot. And then it grows into a woman who becomes his babysitter and torments him and seduces his father. And then eventually he and Letty work together to banish the being again. Except they can't really get it done. And these extra dimensional cleaning be like... They sound like crows almost the way she describes them they're called the hunger birds and their job is to keep the universe in order by removing things that are out of place and so they come to remove this creature but then it turns out that part of the being's being is lodged in the protagonist's heart and letty has to sacrifice her life to prevent the protagonist from being consumed by the hunger birds and erased from existence and then she is so weakened by this that she has to go into sort of like healing coma inside the ocean which is the pond on the hempstock farm that's some sort of like like well we'll talk about its nature but it's connected to all of space and time and so she goes into the uh pond and is apparently still there and every so often sort of psychically calls the narrator to the farm to check in to see how she's doing and to see if her sacrifice was worth it and at some point she may or may not be healed and emerge from the pond, but that has yet to happen. And um, then the narrator leaves and his sort of memory papers over all of this. And he remembers Letty as being a relatively normal girl who moved to Australia when he was a child. So let me ask you a question before we start getting into the themes. Do you think this is a fantasy story or a magical realism story? Neither. Neither. Wow. That's an important part of one of my, of two of my three takes. So here's my takes. Well, first off, let's just talk, uh, you know, less specifically about quality. What did you like this? I liked it a lot. Me too. I I really enjoyed it because I I like this is like classic Neil Gaiman. It has an interesting story, interesting characters. It's well written. Um, it's short and. Sometimes Neil Gaiman books are too long. This, I think, sort of compresses all the action without getting rid of a lot of the really interesting and unique details that he put in. Like, specifically, the fact that the miner who committed suicide was an opal miner from South Africa. I mean, he puts a lot of interesting details in it and, like, his descriptions. It's very textured. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's really well written. I don't know what's going to happen when they make it into the movie or TV show that they're inevitably going to make it into, but I think the way that it flows, it's it's classic Neil Gaiman. In a way, it's kind of Neil Gaiman concentrated. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's like a shorter work, but it hits a lot of the themes that he's interested in. It also has a lot of his weaknesses present. I don't think that it really affects my enjoyment of the book all that much, but. It can get a little cutesy, especially when it's musing philosophically on the nature of childhood and stories. Sometimes it feels like he's fishing for Goodreads quotes. Yeah, and I kind of feel like, I mean, I've read some of Neil Gaiman's work that were specifically written for children, and I think like... I don't think this is for children. No, but I think when he writes for children, he has a tendency to sort of pander to like get children to like 
think he's either funny or very clever when he really doesn't need to do that because when he writes for adults he writes the same way and the things that he's doing don't seem as like pandering yeah i'm just saying there's like parts of this book where he like the character kind of digresses to make a, like a philosophical observation about like this is what it's like to be a child and it feels like oh well i can see that like written in white text over a picture with an instagram filter on it yes definitely uh and it's also got that kind of thing where the main character's a, a dude he's a he's a boy and then or the, the women in the novel are a monster three powerful beings that exist seemingly just to comfort him and his mean sister and his mom who's not who's like part of the plot is she's not around a lot yeah i think i mean we talked about this a lot. I was going to say endlessly, but that's kind of ridiculous. Well, yeah, we talked about it in, in Sandman. This feels very much... I think the thing that I really like about this story is it feels... Like you said, it's classic Neil Gaiman. It feels like him, even more so than something like Coraline, it feels like him back in the Sandman mode. And, like, writing... Because that is one of my takes, is this is a Sandman story. Uh, and it has that that sort of structure. It's got the the, the other world... Where the rules are different, encroaching on the real world. It's got these ideas of memory. It's got this um, supernatural story that's constructed to allow, provide a avenue on which to reflect on the passage of time and the way in which people change. I mean, all this is really missing is Sandman showing up. Which, yeah, I, I think... Maybe that's why Letty ended up in the ocean because there was no resolution for her. I, I'm not going to defend Neil Gaiman's depiction of women, especially angry women or, or mean women. But the only thing I'm going to say is that the, I think the reason why Ursula Moncton, who's the monster, and her parent, his parents are depicted that way Oy. is because this is a common motif in Neil Gaiman, which is the angry, uninterested you know, parent who doesn't pay attention to the child. This yeah. is a classic British fairy tale. This is very common in a lot of British fantasy. I mean, look at like, I'll talk later about the dark materials, but it's kind of the same thing. They're like every parent in a fantasy novel that's geared towards children or young adults, the parents are terrible. All the adult characters for the most part have some level of like, nuance or even humanity kind of sanded away because this is very much a story told from a child's perspective not i mean it's narrated by a grown man but he's he's he is relating to us his childhood memories as he perceived them as a child and that's the other thing that i really like about this is the way that he portrays the experience of being a child in this now eagle-eared listeners will notice that in the beginning of this podcast i mentioned that you're my mom <laughs> <laughs> which is true and so you uh can probably attest to the fact that i was a very frightful and nervous child and i'm a pretty nervous guy now as an adult but it was even more so as a child and i think like i get frustrated a lot and they'd get frustrated too when i was a kid with a lot of art and literature about childhood that focuses on like 
there's whimsy and magic is alive to you. And it's like, those things are true. But also, being a child is terrifying. Exactly. For At least for a kid like me, who I related to the narrator of this a lot, I was scared of a lot of things and scared like all the time. You live in a world where everything is bigger and more powerful than you. You have almost no control over anything. Even when your parents are like nice and good, they're still you're still at their mercy no matter what's going on. Like I, one of my actual favorite parts of this story is in the very beginning when he's just talking about the breakfast they had on the day that the opal miner died. Because uh, there's this whole thing about how, like, his dad doesn't like toasters, so he toasts all the bread on the grill, which is the broiler for Americans. And the bread is always burnt, and it's like, yeah, you know, you just can't as a kid. You're not, you have to eat the burnt toast. You're not allowed to, you can't just get a toaster. You have no power to change anything, especially these little parts of your life. And so much of this story is about the narrator feeling powerless and confused and like so a lot of times when you're you're a kid it kind of feels like the world is beset by like demons that they're just these inexplicable beings and can pop in and out of your life and have immense power over you and your the way you understand your world that you have no control over and have barely any hope of understanding is this about the fact that I didn't like grape jelly and you never had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with grape jelly when you were a child? Is it's, that what this is about? It's not, not about that. <laughs> but I think like that little moment with the toast is like a hint at to what the rest of the book is going to be about when those sorts of things happen on a larger scale. Monk, Ursula Monkton shows up and you know she's the antagonist. She's the, the monster he is powerless to do anything about her because his parents like her and he, like his world is controlled by these beings. And in a way, his parents are also kind of like the fleas, the creatures that he's that threaten the world in this because they are they have control that he doesn't have and they have powers he doesn't understand and think, desires he doesn't understand. I think you're right. I had the second time, the first time I had read the book and the second time I listened to the audiobook. Mm-hmm. which was actually performed by Neil Gaiman. Mm-hmm. And I think listening to the audiobook, he sort of inflected on the parts that were most relevant to him, so you could hear that. But the part that like really got to me about like why this was sort of a story about coping with, um, not necessarily a bad childhood, but maybe coping with like a bad incident in a, in a mm-hmm. normal childhood, was when he was talking about how he had a birthday party and no one came to yeah. his birthday party. And then, so he didn't really mind because he still had the birthday party and his parents just had a birthday party with just two children and, you know, he still got what he wanted and, and that was fine. But it made me think that, like, the the things that he were was remembering might not have necessarily been the way that things happened, but mm-hmm. it might have been the filter that he put on it for his mechanism for dealing with these things. Because, I mean, obviously, like, it's about childhood fears. So, like, the first base fear that he deals with is the opal miner's death mm-hmm. and then the death of his kitten. And yeah. then he's sort of dealing with this sort of transitional phase of his childhood where his mother is returning to work. Yeah. So he and his sister, who depend on their mother, they take care of them. 
has decided to return to work because they have a financial downfall or they never really say what it is, but they ended up having to take in borders and the mother had to go to work. So that's like a transitional change that's affecting him. And then there's this sort of like, uh, very common in like Neil Gaiman is this sort of casual cruelty that these adults have that they they may not even be aware that they're being mean to the children mm-hmm. and I think that sort of affects him as well because he's sort of dealing with that because he doesn't have friends so his family are like his you know his main interaction yeah there's like this one part that's genuinely really sad that's just like a little toss-up moment when he says to his sister, like, oh, I was at my friend's, and she just immediately goes, you don't have any friends. Right. But that was, <laughs> it was, like, another thing. It's so much, like, about... Like, he's not, like, he, bullied. He's just, like, quietly lonely. But I think the reason why he's quietly lonely, and I think this is something that a lot of people who like Neil Gaiman can relate to, because Neil Gaiman himself is like this. It's, you're lonely because you're different from the immediate circle of people that surround you. Yeah. We talked a lot about this when we read the story about the uh, Dungeon Master. hmm Where he is different and weird in his family, but when he goes out into the broader world, he will not be weird and lonely because he will meet more people like himself. But, you know, he likes to read and he likes show tunes and... You know, he has a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan in this book. So he has like a lot of like tender, you know, tendencies that his father, who's depicted as being very masculine. And so I feel like, yeah, so his like loneliness is based on the fact that he is just different. And I don't think a lot of kids deal with that because they're like, you know, they might have different interests or they might be into things that their parents aren't into. And there comes a point in your childhood where you don't always like the same things that your family likes. And then you start to feel it's like the teenage isolation when you realize that you're different. I mean, he doesn't come right out and say like, Oh, it's a gender issue or sexuality issue, Mm -hmm. but it's more like hobby issue. So he's different from his sister. He's different from his parents and then he might be considered, like, a little bit weird when he goes to school because he has this, like, love of, like, um, 1930s literature that's written for girls about, like, spies. Yeah. He's, like, obsessed with this. Uh, I also really like that uh, it's the only place I've ever really seen this broached is this idea that, like, money is scary when you're a kid. Because this is a thing I experienced a lot as a child. Like, money is terrifying it's everybody wants it and it controls everything and it makes people weird when it's mentioned and people have fights over it that get really vicious and there's like a lot of pressure in having it like i remember like being a kid and getting money for like my birthday or something and being like riddled with anxiety about like well what do i spend it on like why do i know if the thing i want to spend the money on is good enough and then once i spend it it's not there and i'm not going to get any more money and like uh, what if I do it wrong and I get something bad or or there's something better or or whatever and like I th- like that he personifies it with this like money demon that like make, puts like a coin in his throat well, that he what... chokes on and just like ruins like everybody's day by giving them money in this neighborhood. Well, I think that's kind. Of, I I think that you can realize very early on that money, whatever money problem precipitated this them having to take in the opal miner the opal miner and then 
so then even after the opal miner dies and it's assumed that whatever the opal miner did allowed the people to have this money demon come in and then at one point she says well i was just giving people what they wanted yeah but it was sort of like a couple times yeah it's sort of like a perverted version of what people want because she doesn't really understand it because some of the money that they get like he gets a he finds like a jar, a jam jar that's filled with money from mm-hmm. before the war, and that's very exciting to him. But then when the money comes out of his throat, that's not as exciting. No, it's not as exciting to choke on so. the money. But it also like that hints at stu- like the she ruins a person's. There's like a ma- like a one of the neighbors has like a huge disagreement in their marriage because of the money, and it's like where did this money come from, and it's. The money creates all these implications the, that exacerbate all the existing tensions in it's, these people's lives. That makes sense, though, because if you think about it from a child's point of view, if your parents are fighting, because obviously the part of the problem in their household is there's this up this uprising. I guess the mother has to return to work, but you know that there's no... They would not, they would not know that they had money problems unless their parents were fighting. Yeah. So... For a child to say, like, oh, there's money problems, one of the ways to deal with it is to get money. Mm-hmm. But, like, as an adult, you know that just getting money is not necessarily all of the money problems solved. But I think it's kind of interesting because, I mean, it's about childhood and it's about childhood fears and it's about a coping mechanism for dealing with your childhood and you can tell like that he has ingrained in his mind this mechanism of the story of the hemstocks and what happened to him over that summer to deal with what actually happened because he doesn't even remember the he only remembers what happened in his mind with Ursula Moncton and you know all the supernatural and celestial things that happened to him over that summer but he doesn't really remember the basis for why these things happened yeah. So I think one of the one of the ways to so one of my three takes is that this story is about magical thinking and the way that that you do that a lot as a kid. And so it's like it's the story of a bad summer, but he all these supernatural elements exist to knit it together into an understandable narrative because otherwise it doesn't make any sense and that doesn't like work in your brain as a kid. Like, all these bad things couldn't just happen to have happened during the same summer. There needs to be a reason. And then on top of that, there's this, like, guilt and self-loathing where it's like, it needs to, the reason needs to be me. And so he constructs this narrative around, you know, the death of the opal miner, uh, his mom going back to work, his dad abusing him, this mean woman who enters their house and jeopardizes his parents' marriage and his cat dying and his friend moving away. He knits them all together into this narrative where it's all his fault because he broke a rule. Which is like a very little kid thing to think. Like, And then you put the entire weight of the world on your shoulders. And like, yeah, and then it does really start to feel like you're being tormented by cosmic beings beyond your understanding. But you invented them to torment you. And... You know, he. I think also towards the end of the uh, the story, in addition to all those other terrible things, we see him start to experience like depression for the first time. And from what little bits and pieces we get of his adult life, is probably a, a problem he 
continues to deal with. Because I think the Hunger Birds are this, like, violent personification of depression and self-loathing. They, they, they embody this idea that, like, what will fix the world is for you to not be in it. And these beings' job is to do that, to fix the world by removing you from it. And they continue when he... he there's this long sequence at the end uh, before Letty sacrifices herself for him where he's in this fairy circle and nothing that can hurt him can get into it. And the hunger birds are circling around and using, like, images and people to taunt him. But then in the end, the most, like affecting argument they make is just like hey look at all we're gonna hurt everyone unless you just let us take you away yeah i think that's i mean i think that really like whatever like his mindset like if he is suffer from depression comes back because he seems to according to the elder hemstock when he returns back from the funeral she tells him that he has come back at certain points in his life and he doesn't remember it but then even that becomes a coping mechanism because he justifies it as it's a, he comes back because Letty wants to check on him to make sure that the hole in his heart isn't growing. But well, what no, I think, she wants to check on him to make sure that her sacrifice was worth it. Right. But I think he goes there because he, in some way, he's unaware of it, but he finds comfort yeah. in that place. And even though the place itself is gone, like his childhood is gone... The Hemstocks remain there, mm-hmm. and they're like a constant, and he goes back there. But I want to talk a little bit about this whole, like, I want to talk about the Hemstocks. Sure. And then what they represent. Because there's lots of talk on the internet and lots of talk on Goodreads that the Hemstocks are the triple goddesses, which is a very common reoccurring theme in a lot of Neil Gaiman. I mean, I think they are. I don't, I can't imagine any argument, any even slightly convincing argument against that interpretation of them. I mean, they're literally an old lady, a less old lady who is a mother and a young girl. Yeah. And they have super magic powers, but they very explicitly identify themselves as not being witches. So I think like my, the so the other two takes after the this is about a depression and a bad childhood and magical thinking are this is a Sandman story they're the the they're the kindly ones the triple goddess the the fates the furies whatever you want to call them uh, and this is kind of their redemption arc because Letty's sacrifice and death directly mirrors Morpheus's she sacrifices herself and has her heart torn out by angry birds right. Yeah. Like it's it's and there's water. Like she goes into the pond, Morpheus dies in the rain. Like so they set into motion all of through through because of anger and pettiness over the the um Orpheus making them cry in the underworld. They set into motion the events that lead to Morpheus dying. And now they have to, this is the, them living this out through Letty. Like, they, now they have to sacrifice themselves for a person and grapple with the conflict between their nature and the nature of the universe and be at the mercy of this other power. I mean, there's an argument to be made that the hunger birds are also the kindly ones. And in a way, this is entirely like an internal process for the gestalt being that is the triple goddess reconciling its actions in the kindly ones with 
its broader sense of its own morality. I'm trying to remember what the physical description of the kindly ones was from. Was there a child? There's the mother, the maiden, and the crown. Uh, it's not so like the the maiden is not always a child, right? But it's always the the youngest and and you know virginal one, and then the the mother, and then the old crone. Yeah, well, I think that the thing that makes me not think that this is a kindly one's like a Sandman story, and think it's more like related to a Carlin story, is that they in in Sandman they're so set on vengeance. Yeah. But in this one, they're they're sort of more they're more passive. Like they're not going out mm-hmm. outside of the farm looking for activities they're just they're kind of like focused on their own little plot and i mm-hmm. think at one point they even say that like you know like this is you can't come onto our land it's protected mm-hmm. or whatever but i think like the to go back to like the whole triple goddess thing i think this is very common like i said a motif that neil gaiman uses quite often in different variations and even within the same man's series and not talking about the kindly ones there is that sort of story arc with Thessaly where they sort of become this sort of modified modern version of the triple goddess well yeah there's the thing with Thessaly there's the, the three women in the diner in 24 hours there's um Hal and Rose and Rose's forthcoming child there's uh you know But I think it's like, I think it's... Rose and her mom in Unity. It's kind of a little bit heavy-handed, this whole emphasis on, like, the divine feminine. Because according to the internet, Neil Gaiman wrote this story for his wife. What I read was he was writing the story, and in order to keep her... She doesn't like fantasy, so he was adding elements in specifically to appeal to her. Which, I, I don't actually think this is a Sandman story now. Because I think it's kind of silly to be like, oh, the triple goddess is in this, so it's a Sandman story. Where the point of that archetype even being in Sandman in the first place is that that's an archetype that recurs throughout, you know, folklore and fiction and religion across all of human history. So I, I think it's also kind of, then it's like, well, then, you know, every fucking story is a Sandman story then, which it is, which is sort of the great magic trick of Sandman I mean unlike the other two ends of the Trinity Neil Gaiman is not a self-professed magician I'm referring to Alan Moore and Grant Morrison Uh, but like it I think there's a powerful work of chaos magic at work in Sandman in the way that it recontextualizes literally every other piece of fiction or even act of imagination as being an extension of the mythos set up in Sandman. And so that's kind of going on here, but I don't think it's any more or less of a Sandman story than any other Neil Gaiman story. Yeah, I think once I think once Neil Gaiman, he his his world and his writing is always going to be self-referencing because he's just that kind of writer. But to go back to the divine feminine there's lots of parts like and we talked about this when we talked about Sandman I think that Neil Gaiman thinks that there is a secret female world that is in his mind more magical than the actual world and he's not a part of it Mm -hmm. and there's always these sort of 
feminine references. There's like things in the, like this story is a perfect example. There's lots of things about feminism and lots of things about being a woman mm -hmm. that are in this story. You know, there's a whole conversation about the cows on the farm and the women are the farmers and are taking care of the animals. Yeah, you don't there's, need men unless you want to breed more men. Like, yes, exactly. A line then, she says, uh, Granny Hemstock, I think says so, so. that. A lot of their magic is based on like handicrafts. Mm -hmm. Like the, the mother... Like what she does when she she sews out the she cuts out the bad part of the day and sews the cloth back together and then there's talk of knitting and there's talk of weaving and then there's this cooking is like a like this divine female mystic view of like what happens when women are only together and what women's culture is without men around. Yeah, I think there's a lot of influence on the the Hemstocks uh, from. The witches from Discworld, like Terry Pratchett's take on, on witchcraft. I think those characters are a little bit more nuanced than the Hemstocks, but it's like... Granny Hemstock is almost like a, just a less uh, curmudgeonly Granny Weatherwax. But I think, I mean, you can see it in the way... Well, you can see it in the Triple Goddess, the actual physical manifestation of the Hemstocks. But also when they start to fight with Ursula Moncton and the Hunger Birds, he describes their actual form as like fabric-based. So they're soft and they're but diaphanous. The monsters are also fabric. Yes. Uh, but, her, but Ursula Moncton's fabric is ripped and canvas. shredded and it's hanging and dirty, hanging from the ceiling. But when he describes what he sees Letty in her actual form, mm. she's like, you know, this like iridescent fabric that's flowing and transforming and mesmerizing him. And he sees this light and this like air and, you know, he sort of connects to her as like this sort of ethereal like manifestation because I guess when he views her, he views her with a different way that he views Ursula Moncton. Well, yeah, I think that, well, that raises a question which is, we never really get, and we don't get any sort of explanation of, like, what exactly are the hempstocks? What exactly are the fleas? There's lots lots of references to the idea that the, the fleas come from somewhere else that they, the hempstocks can't help them get back to, that maybe their home was destroyed or something. And then there's the, the idea that, like, Letty and the other hempstocks' true physical form is like a, a cleaner, more complete and calming version of what the fleas form is, it makes me wonder if the fleas are whatever the hemstocks are after, from after their world has been destroyed. If they're the hemstocks without an ocean, like let loose in the wind, degrading slowly into these cruel, um, you know, beings... So what do you think, let's talk about the ocean at the end of the lane. What do you think that actually symbolizes? What do you think that the ocean actually is? What do I think it actually is or what do I think it symbolizes are two oh. different questions. Um, it's, it's a comment that's more of a question, which is actually in two parts. Let me talk about what I think it is first. Because, like I said, I don't think this is a, a Sandman story. And I don't. I, you asked me if I thought it was fantasy or magical realism and I said no. I don't think it's either. Because I think this is a science fiction story. Oh, interesting. Uh, I think what's going on here is like big, like quantum, multiversal, 
like big deal sci-fi ideas, but filtered through a child's perspective and this sort of rural-ish, suburban-ish English milieu makes it look like magic and like folk magic, but it's not. And I think there's a thing with the hemp socks, like going by their age, representing a kind of like evolution of understanding of the universe. There's this thing that people talk about where it's like chemistry is just applied physics and physics is just applied mathematics. And then mathematics in, in a way kind of is everything like uh, Pythagoras was sort of right. Except, like, everything breaks down at the quantum level. But I think that's what's going on with the Hemsocks, where it's like, everything Letty does is this, like, fairy tale rule, take four steps and turn, don't walk out of the fairy circle, like, folk magic stuff. And then the the mother, the middle Hemsock, Ginny Hemsock, her, she does sort of basically the same thing as Letty, but a little bit more sophisticated and a little bit more practiced. It's more of a craft. And less of like a binding set of rules. And then Granny Hemsock openly references stuff like electrons and like being able to see the molecular makeup of things. And I think what she's doing is she's like totally moved past the need to couch things in this magical, um, ritualized shell. And she's just like pushing quarks around. With her mind. I think the Hemstocks are like... They're not witches. Because... Granny Hemstock literally says they're not witches. They're like Star Trek god aliens. They're the Q continuum. They're Galactus. uh, But just viewed through a lens that makes them look like witches. And I think that the ocean... Is like some sort of tesseract. Or some kind of like... Entrance into the super sargasso sea or like the quantum field because when the narrator goes into the ocean he reaches this level of like enlightenment and understanding where you can perceive like all time at once it's essentially like in left like we talked about in the uh, previous swamp thing episode that's very interesting i mean i i had no idea i had no i thought it was kind of like an expansion of the sort of like cauldron this sort of still water mm. that you know this sort of physical manifestation of some kind of water-based object that the furies in all kinds of different manifestations they always have some type of yeah vessel that they kind of like manifest where they look and see what's going on but it's like they also the hemsocks can just the hemsocks can just see everything at all times like they're in, connected to the ocean or something in some way where like they can see when people are approaching the house or whatever and can kind of casually rewrite reality and perform even more expansive retconning of reality. But I lost my train of thought. I don't remember what I was going to say now. Yeah. They, they also seem to have like a, not a linear perspective on time. Like they seem to, they can understand linear time, but, like, it seems like things are kind of all happening at once. Because, like, they mention at one point when the narrator's parents are coming to the house, they're like, oh, maybe they can just show up last Tuesday when we weren't home. Yeah, I think, and also they also make references, too, to a lot of things that happened during Cromwell. Like, it, some mysterious incident that happened during when, Cr- when, 
when Cromwell was there. Yeah. I think they're like, they're multi-dimensional beings. I think that's what the fleas are too. I think that's why the narrator, when he sees them in their true form, he sees them as being like flat, like a a fabric. Mm-hmm. Because that like that's his three-dimensional brain trying to perceive these beings from a higher plane of reality. And it's like not mm-hmm. working. It's shutting down. I mean, he even at one point, I think, compares... Oh, no, it's not the... He's not talking about the flea. He, but there's a part where when the hunger bird eats something out of reality, he compares the uh, the residue it leaves behind to television static. Right. Where it's just like his... It's just whatever he's looking at, his brain can't perceive it, and it's crossing the wires in his head and creating, like, visual feedback. I like the part where Ginny tells the hunger bird to put everything back the way it was, and then she specifically... And don't forget the fox that was there. Mm-hmm. So, like, in case... Like, they might be, like, tricksters and trying to, like, cheat. Yeah. But I think it's definitely... I mean, there. it's like... One of the themes is definitely, like, consciousness or self-awareness and i feel like it's even like like self-awareness is like a healing process Mm -hmm. but also like self-awareness is this sort of like metaphysical construct like when he now is at an age where he's becoming aware of these sort of higher thinking it's not just his base needs anymore like there's a lot of things going on that is out of his scope of understanding and this is how he's learning to deal with those things. Obviously, he doesn't know how to process the fact that his father is having an affair or that his mother, they have financial problems and his mother has to go to work and what this means for his parents' marriage, which seems rather fragile to begin with. Yeah. I think what the ocean represents, to get back to that, is that understanding because He's struggling for understanding throughout the entirety of the story. When he goes into the ocean, he finally gets it. And he gets everything, and he's at peace. And he almost lets himself dissolve into the substance of the universe because this understanding is so attractive. And having to come out of the ocean is is this, like, growing up process of, like, accepting that you'll never, you're never going to get everything. You're never going to have ultimate perfect perspective on every event that happens in your life. Or every person that inhabits it. I also think there's something to be said about the fact that, like, I referenced his father abusing him. And there's, it's the scariest thing Neil Gaiman's ever written, by far, I think, is this sequence where he is scared of Ursula Moncton and is refusing to eat food she cooked and gets into an argument with his father who drowns him in the tub. Like, holds him under the water. That... That really, well, first of all, it was very intense. But I think the fact that he, because he wouldn't eat his dinner, his father drowned him, is an indication that there's this cruelty going on. Yeah. You don't escalate from not abusing your child to the first act of abuse is to drown that child in the tub. Well, I think it's more complicated than that. Because he, well, I want to say the thing. Finish the thing I was saying about the ocean, and then we can talk about this 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 scene again. So I think there's this thing where he goes into the water, and is almost destroyed, and comes out with a newfound understanding about his place in the world, about what the kind of man his father is, about like what cruelty can look like, and what it's like to genuinely fear your own death. And then on the metaphorical level, in the Hempstock's farm, he goes into the ocean, into the water. 
is almost destroyed by it and comes out with this greater understanding of the world. Uh, but I think the thing that's happening with the dad is like, he mentions earlier on in the story that his dad never has never hit him. Right. And like his parents are not, they don't do corporal punishment. And I think that like, they're having these uh, financial problems. The wife has gone back to work. And the husband is having this affair that he's clearly, like, very scared of his wife finding out about. And he's coming apart at the seams. And he's angry at his child. And he can't make himself not be angry. Like, he, he, it's not going away like it normally would. And I think in a weird way, he, he does the drowning in the tub because it's not hitting. Right. So it's like not it's not a thing that he he's said he said to himself probably I won't hit my son, and this doesn't break that rule, and it's scarier because of that. He does something in like f- far more horrifying than just like a slap on the wrist, which still would have been bad when he puts him in the top. And I think the scariest part is he grabs onto his dad's tie to try and pull himself out of the water while he's being held there. And when he does come out, all his dad says is, you ruined my tie. But I think it's interesting because when Ginny gives him the option of removing Mm -hmm. that part of his life and not remembering it, he, very adult-like, says, I want to remember it. Because it happened to me. It's a thing that happened. But I think, like, let's talk a little bit about Ursula Moncton. Or, what is it, Skartosh? That's what Ginny calls him, her? Yeah. So, he goes... So the neighborhood is plagued by this sort of money demon and Letty says that they can cure it but they have to go into the ocean and then she says don't let go of my hand and he let goes of his hand and then he allows the manifestation of Ursula Moncton to come into the world literally a worm through a wormhole in his foot and there's this sort of really disturbing part where he's in the bathroom and he's pulling out the worm and he flushes it down the drain and the next day Ursula Moncton shows up and she's wearing like a pink and green pink and gray dress. The same color as the worm. The same color as the worm. And then she immediately moves into the house as the babysitter. And then to continue on with this sort of idea that she has to give people what she wants, she becomes the perfect babysitter, which is what the mom wants. And then she he beco- she becomes a love interest for the father is what he wants. And then to the sister, the sister really likes her and thinks that she's fun and cool. So she becomes this sort of like... Role model. Role model of what she wants. But he, Ursula never becomes... Unless what... Okay, I just had it. I just thought of this. Ursula becomes like a nemesis to the boy because that's actually what he wants. Because other than that, what is Ursula giving well, him that he wants? I don't think... I think it's more fucked up than that. Really? I don't think it's she, he wants a nemesis. He wants he's wants to be punished because he feels guilty. Oh, yeah. So guilty that he constructed a narrative where, like, a monster shows up and it's all his fault. That's what I'm... I mean, I... I, I that makes a lot of sense to me because I think that the manifestation of the hemstocks are to the, to the young boy... Like, they love him, and he Mm -hmm. wants to be loved and cared for by these women, and then all three of them in different ways love and care for him. So that, on the flip side of that, is the other 
mean woman, Ursula, who doesn't love him and doesn't care for him and wants to punish him. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's kind of like the conflict of the, like, his self-identity that he's growing. Like, should he be loved or should he be punished? Because he feels guilty for some reason. And even when he's happy with Letty, he feels bad because of what... He knows what he did and Mm -hmm. that she has to do things so that he can be safe. Yeah. Uh, So I was going to say... Uh, another argument that uh, backs up this Sandman hypothesis is that uh, they don't go into the ocean when they have to stop the the money thing, which you know is also Ursula. They they just have to travel deeper into the their land, right. and at some point they cross over into this other place or this in between place, and it's like it's a uh, and that's also the thing where the opal miner dies near the farm. And that's what allow like, and his death becomes this beacon that draws this thing over from the other side, and it can cross over because he's at the farm when he releases his sort of psychic beacon by killing himself. Uh, and it's like, oh, that's a soft place. And I think you're right because she says that when when Letty goes to when they're there with the police officer, she says, "I have to take him to our farm." Mm-hmm. So it's implied that it doesn't exactly happen on the farm, but like you said, really close to the farm. And then, and that's when you first start to realize that the Hemstocks are not entirely what they seem to be because they're having a conversation, which obviously is a conversation that they have all the time. And it's about sort of the metaphysical world. And then they say the same things like, you know, like, you know, she knows that they're coming and the police mm-hmm. officer is coming. And there's a point where. Letty says, like, oh, there's going to be four when she's getting the cups out. Like, she has to get more cups out because the grandmother senses that there's extra people coming. So then once once they're out of that sort of area that's his area, the lane, and then where the suicide happens, and then when they actually get to the farm, then you can, see like, sort of see, like, there's, like, the magic part of what the Hemstocks are is, like, revealed. Yeah. And then another argument for the sci-fi thing is there's literally a wormhole. That's called a wormhole. That is a passageway between two different parts of reality. I like the part where she removes the wormhole from his foot. And then it's in the jar. Yeah. And then they open up the jar and then it grows. And that's when he looks into the wormhole that's outside of his foot. And he sees the orange sky where Ursula Monkton came from. Hmm. And she's talking about how her world has changed. And now she's looking for a new world. Yeah. Another argument for the Sandman thing is she's from a scary. Yeah. That, that, or the Hemstock Farm is, is itself a scary. I think the Hemstock Farm is a soft place. It's a soft place. Um, if we're are operating under the Sandman assumption, then their farm is a soft place. And the place that the fleas come from are scaries. And they're like Brute and Glob or the Corinthian. I mean, they act a lot. Moncton... And the description you get of the other fleas, they don't act dissimilar to those kinds of beings, like the rogue dreams that we see in Sandman. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, I don't, I don't remember. Yeah, the wormhole. They pull it out. They pull the hole out, and then the hole is like a physical form. It's just like a very weird, uh, abstract yeah. idea. Yeah, and I think that's kind of, that sort of reminded me, like you said, of the Aleph. That sort of nebulous kind of world that's like very fluid and very elastic. 
She carries the ocean in a bucket at one point. Yeah, because she can't take him out of the fairy ring, so mm. she brings the ocean there. But I think also, I think it's it's kind of sad at the end when he realizes that he's been sitting there for hours and he doesn't realize it, but then also that he has in certain points of his life. And he even sort of kind of hints that he knows at the points. He doesn't remember going, but he he said like, oh, this was when I first got married and I had two children mm -hmm. and then when his marriage fell apart. So he knows that there's like chaotic and like really intense emotional periods happening in his life and he goes back to the farm. But when the when the grandmother says to him, you know, she wants you to come back so she can see if the hole in your heart is healing. And that's when you realize that this is sort of like either him dealing with his like depression or him dealing with the stresses of his life. Like this is a lifelong coping mechanism of coming back to the hemstocks. Yeah. But obviously they don't ever interfere with his life again after that. No. Um, are the hemstocks all the same person? I don't at know. different points in their life, because they're like, yeah, there's you know, like she thought that the, he thought that when he saw the grandmother that it was Ginny, because he thought that the the grandmother would be too old. Yeah, but then he sees Ginny and, and she looks the same. Yeah, yeah, but it's like if you're, you know, they say, oh, you you if you only need men, if you're going to breed more men, but if you can make more. Hemstocks by just plucking them out of points in this singular timeline. It could be. Yeah. Yeah, because she doesn't, like, Ginny doesn't actually say that Letty, he's, he thinks that Letty is Ginny's daughter. Yeah. And he's, multiple times in the story, tries to ask Letty and Ginny if that's her mother or that's her daughter. Mm -hmm. And they never really, like, answer, but they do kind of say, like, well, you know, Letty is just so young and she's still learning. And then Ginny says, well, you know, I'm learning. I can't do things that I can't. I never remember the third hemstock. She's called Granny. Granny. That she's like, oh, you know, we, we have to wake Granny up from a nap because we can't do this magic. Yeah. She's like kind of an Odin figure. Yeah. She goes definitely. to sleep and then she's just asleep. And then uh, they're like, she could sleep for five minutes, a hundred years. Yeah. We never know. Uh, I mean, then Letty goes into the ocean. Also, is Letty the lady in the lake? Could be. Um, are, is that what the hemstocks are? They're like, was that a hem... Are we supposed to take that the lady in the lake was a hemstock? Or is he saying... Or is Neil Gaiman doing what he usually does, which is to sort of try to weave together, like, mythology and existing, you know, stories into a modern construct? Mm-hmm. Uh, they, Do you think that they're, they're, that we've seen the end of the Hemstocks? I know that one of them shows up in Graveyard Book. Oh, really? I've never actually read that, but I, there's like a Liza Hemstock in it. Okay. Yeah, I did read that. I mean, if the, if the Hemstocks are the triple goddess, then they're just in everything. And we, we'll see them a million times. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I'm probably not these particular characters. I wouldn't be surprised if he returns at some point to characters like this. So overall, what did you think of the book? Yeah, I thought it was good. I liked it a lot. It's, it's, uh, yeah, I think it's really well done. It's one of the, the more compelling, like, meditations on childhood that I've read in a while. It, like I said, it gets a little bit cutesy. I think the one, like, metaphorical thing that's sort of the literal hole in the heart. Yeah. 
That's uh, to represent like, like depression or trauma or whatever it's representing is like a little on the nose, but that doesn't bother me too much. Uh, yeah, and there's a lot of interesting ideas to puzzle around with. I like how I think it's a really interesting and impressive feat of like writing and characterization that the Hemstocks are so enigmatic and their nature is so obscure while also still being like really warm and likable characters. Like, because from a certain perspective, they're, like I said, they're Galactus, they're Cthulhu, Mm -hmm. Uh, but they're nice, which is cool. And it doesn't feel like incongruous, those two elements. I, I mean, I really, I could relate to this story a lot because I thought a lot of the story was about sort of like finding a place for yourself and then Mm. reconciling sort of your, your personality, your identity in a construct of where you're different So, I mean, it's not like you're different and it's bad and bad things happen to you because you're different. You just feel like you don't quite fit in. And I feel like that's sort of like a powerful story about like right now you feel like you don't fit in and you're different and no one comes to your birthday party and you love Gilbert and Sullivan and your dad hates that kind of sort of like what he has this sort of like throwback masculinity where like liking girl spy stories and like listening to Gilbert and Sullivan is like not what he wants his son to do. And I feel like saying like it's sad because he doesn't really become happy in the story. Like he never really comes adjusted. But then saying like there's a way for you to deal with feeling different, even amongst people that you're supposed to feel safe with. He doesn't feel safe with his family because he feels different from his family. And I think that's a sort of well, a story that a lot of people need to maybe, be able to relate to. Maybe he also doesn't feel safe around his family because his dad tried to drown him in a tub. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's like, like I said before, it's like, if you have a child, I, everyone's childhood has problems and issues and there's periods where things are not great. But if you don't have, like a lot of literature that's for like children, it's like, it's either that you have, like you said, this idyllic, perfect childhood where there's magic and you know, and then there's also the flip side where it's like you have an awful childhood and you're a stepchild and you're forced to clean the castle. So there's like there's really no like medium literature that says like your childhood was good overall or it was middling, but it wasn't traumatic and it wasn't fantastic. So there's like there's a lot of people who are in that middle space. Yeah, uh, and I think just the thing that I appreciate the most is just the acknowledgement that yeah like it feels like there's mag- magic is real when you're a kid also magic's fucking scary it's just it's like magic is not like f- inherently fun yeah but I, I mean I feel it was it's definitely like part of the Neil gaming universe and it fits like perfectly in there sure yeah so uh that's it I don't do we have anything else to say on this one I don't think so I think we really said a lot so, um, what else have you been reading? Well, I just finished the um, trilogy, His Dark Materials, the Philip Pullman series with Lyra and Lord Azrael. And mm-hmm. That's another British series that has terrible parents in it. That's a whole I, uh, a whole series of novels that exist to dunk on C.S. Lewis. <laughs> Which... I like C.S. Lewis, but still, I think that is a, a good and noble pursuit. 
Well, I went to Catholic grade school. Mm-hmm. And at some point in your Catholic grade school career, you have to read the entire Chronicles of Narnia. Really? They don't tap out after like the first couple? It's just what I would have imagined. That's like one of the only like complete fantasy novels that you can get when you're in Catholic grade school. So I had read that when I was in grade school, but I had, I guess this came out sort of like in the early 2000s. So it was, I always thought it was a nineties thing. Well, I think it came out. I'm I'm imagining since we didn't read it, that I'm just thinking of Harry Potter. There was like, it was at a point where you were already like reading on your own and we didn't do a lot of like reading together at that time period. Because once you learned how to read, you were an independent reader and you did not cotton to anybody. So the no- Northern Lights, published in North America as a Golden Compass, came out in 1995. Really? That The late. Subtle Knife was 1997 and The Amber Spyglass was 2000. I think we just missed it. There was just like lots of other stuff we were, I was reading or we were reading together when well, I was I a kid. Well, I think you might have been too young for then if it was 1995. That makes sense. Because uh, you wouldn't have been reading on your own at that point. The first time I ever remember hearing about the the Dark Materials franchise was in middle school. One of my teachers recommended it. My English teacher in like sixth or seventh grade, and she was really into like genre fiction. Like she had us read Ender's Game and stuff like that. And she talked a couple times about uh, how much she liked the His Dark Materials trilogy. And I still never ended up reading them. Even though she recommended them. Well, I read them because I wanted to prepare myself for the TV series. Mm. Which looks more interesting than... I guess we should say spoiler alert. Because if you haven't read the series and you're planning on reading it for the TV show, there's a lot of stuff that goes on. Yeah. So I decided to read that and then being like a compulsive completer. Once I read The Golden Compass, I had to finish the other two. And I have to say, they're like very weird and very British and very sort of um, not very subtle comment on religion. But I mean, I always have understood them as being like, I mean, I made a joke about dunking on C.S. Lewis, but I've always sort of understood them as being a response to the Narnia books. And uh, the Narnia stories are not terribly subtle religious allegories no so i would understand uh answering bluntness with bluntness i think what's interesting though is one of the things i we watched the golden compass while i was reading the first book and the movie where lord azrael is is played by daniel craig in the movie you get the impression that lord azrael is the hero and then he, his daughter is going to rescue him. But as the stories in the three books pan out, you realize that there's sort of like, there's this kind of theme where adults are bad and children are good, which is very common in like British literature. Yeah. So like she's the same way. She has like... For the first half of the series, she, the people that she think, the person that she thinks that is her uncle is her father. And this woman that she thinks is a complete stranger is her mother. 
Mm. And then, so then she's essentially raised in like a college by like a series of like servants and tutors and things like that. Mm-hmm. And these two people that are very powerful in this sort of magisterium and the government and this intellectual war that's going on about the, the nature of human souls are two people that have a child and willfully neglect that child and ignore that child until it's revealed that the child is important to both of their agendas. And then it becomes a battle over who gets this child. But I mean, that's not... That happens. That's Evangelion. He ignores his kid until he's useful to him. Yeah. So that's like... Very strange. And then this whole high... Shinji getting the demon. <laughs> this like concept of like the dust, which is very confusing to me. Like where the like the dust is like particles. And then at the third book, he tries to like really late in the game, tries to explain what the dust is. And he sort of compares it to like... Um, particles. It's very kind of convoluted, the science. Obviously, Pullman is not a scientist and didn't even really do a lot of basic research about, like, molecules or anything like that. And he comes up with this crazy thing. And then halfway through, I think I mentioned this, he well, starts to bring in these sort of archangels, like Metatron and these sort of mm-hmm. historic angels. And then there's this battle, this celestial battle that's crazily going on but never really resolves itself. And then it's like, I know he's written it for children, but there are like really strange part. Like there's a part where there's an American and he ends up being like a cowboy adventurer and his demon is a, is a hare. And so it's kind of like, and then there's these people called Egyptians that are like pirates. And so it kind of, he's kind of like slightly like leaning over to like stereotypes, which kind of could be offensive to people. Offensive to pirates? Just a, lots of things going on there. I don't know. It was very strange and very weird. And I felt like it was like, I realized when people talked about it, they're like, oh, the Golden Compass. I loved it. They either didn't finish the series or didn't want to admit that the rest of the series was pretty weak. And I think that's what it is. Yeah, I've never, you know, there's lots of other series where I have an understanding of what the general fan consensus over the thing is. Like, you know. You you get an understanding that a lot of people think that like oh yeah Harry Potter kind of kind of dips after the third book and then you know people will you know hear a lot of people talking about some of the later Hunger Games books not being quite as good but I have no idea what the general fan and critical consensus is on the overall arc of the his Dark Materials franchise. Also, can I just say that his Dark Materials is very awkward. Well, I Title. think the whole... Why isn't it called, like, the Dust Trilogy? Well, I think it's his Dark Materials from the Milton. Yes. I know that he's, like, he, it's the big thing is influenced by Paradise Lost. Like, I think I remember reading a thing about him. Maybe it was, like, an interview or something where he was, like, uh, yeah, I, I, like, he read Paradise Lost when he was, like, at Oxford or something, wherever he went to school. And it, like, he was obsessed with it. And it, a lot of... Just as much as it, it seems like the these books are a reaction to C.S. Lewis, they also seem to be a way for him to process uh, you know Paradise Lost. If he didn't... I don't know. Is he an atheist or has this just been... I believe he is an atheist, okay. yes. I think he's like a Stephen Fry kind of guy. For a 
person who is an atheist and is against organized religion and is dunking on like Catholicism as much as they can with, you know, these whole like demons that are the spirit that are your souls outside of your body. He pretty much constructs his own version of Catholicism. Well, we talked about this because it's like the preacher preacher does the same thing, too. I don't this impulse is very strange to me. I think it does can make for some good stories because I love preacher. But it's this idea where it's like, you know, I don't believe in God, so I'm going to make a story about religion. But, like, God's real. He just sucks. But the <laughs> third part, I think I mentioned this. This is the third book, which is called The Amber Spyglass. They, he introduces a new character, Mary Malone, who is a physics researcher. And she gets transported through this portal that Will, the character from the second book, is able to create because he holds the subtle knife, which is a knife that is so powerful that can kill God. Not a spoiler alert, but if you haven't read the book and you want to watch it, well, we they don't actually kill God. Even though, like, it's it's like you, sh- I have a knife that can kill God, and Lord Azrael is starting a war against the Authority, which is God. They never actually have a battle where they actually confront God, or so it's kind of nebulous. But anyway, so she ends up going to a third world that's not modern times and is not the world that Lyra lives in where where people have demons that are their souls that manifest as animals. This is a third world that's created by... It's whoever... The creatures that live in this world. And I don't know why he goes into this complex detail about how instead of having a central spine, they have a four piece spine that's shaped like a diamond i think i I told i went on and on and on you explained this this to me i I didn't understand any of it and then so they're horse-like animals that are sentient and then they have hooks on their hands and they're like symbiotic creatures that live in this forest that's filled with giant redwoods that drop these seed pods and the seed pods have oil on it and if you interact with the oil you get you become in tune with the dust that flows through the world and you become spiritually aware. So these creatures, this is, it's, I know, these creatures develop this sort of evolutionary device where they can attach themselves to the seed pod and use the seed pod as wheels. And as they are rolling around town, they're releasing the oil into their claws, which give them this sort of, so they become... Highly evolved, very spiritual creatures. But they look like they look diamond-shaped like... motorcycle goats. Yes. And so Mary takes up with them, and in this kind of self-awareness, she begins to understand the theory of what dust is, and she's the one who connects the dust to the medica, meta particles that are sort of related to her physics research. At Oxford, of course. Do you? I have a question that, that I was thinking about. So, in the genre of God exists but he sucks stories, is the Wizard of Oz one of those? Probably, because I think this is exact. This is part of what happens because it turns out that the authority is sickly. This is almost like Preacher too. Yeah, the authority is very sickly, and he cannot rule. So, in the, in the fact, in this sort of gap of when it becomes known that the authority is weakened this sort of magisterium which is Lord Azrael and his intellectual buddies create this sort of like bureaucracy that's quasi-religious 
but they're not like a religious organization. So the authority appoints a spokesman for himself, who is Metatron, which is, you know, in Catholic literature is the sort of, he's Enoch who has been elevated. We went through this whole thing. There's this whole hierarchy of angels and things like that. Yeah. So Lord Azrael is in essence starting a war against the authority, but he ends up battling Metatron. And there's another part where, you know, Metatron is defeated because he turns out that even though he's a highly evolved very ambitious angel that wants to control heaven. He's also like a horny middle-aged man who was defeated by like the sexy mom. Yeah, the Metatron traditionally is the voice of God, played by Alan Rickman in Dogma. Enoch in the Bible, he's a guy that doesn't the he's notable because he's like one of um Adam's descendants, I think. Right. And he doesn't get a description of his death. He just like Walks with God and then goes to heaven. There's a whole apocryphal book of Enoch, I believe. I think it's apocryphal. Yeah, there's a whole apocryphal book of Enoch that is a description of his experience in heaven after ascending there as a living man. Uh, you know. And then they so have, there's that. <laughs> I'm trying to look up the name of the... Mrs. Coulter. That's what she calls her mother, Mrs. Coulter. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's the bear, and they have zeppelins, and... Gotta have zeppelins. You know, so in the third book, the first book is the Golden Compass, and Lyra has the altheometer, which is the machine that lets her know who's telling the truth and lets her know the future. And then the second book is the subtle knife, and that's when she meets Will from modern-day Oxford, who becomes the wielder of the subtle knife. And then in the third book, Mary Malone creates the amber spyglass, which is this sort of ancient technique that she learns from these horse animals to create a lens so that she can see the dust and how it flows through all the multiverses. It's very strange. Did you like it? I kind of was like, by the second book, I kind of knew what was going to happen in the third book. What I really thought was going to happen in the third book was that Lord Azrael was going to fight the authority or mm-hmm. fight the magisterium, and he did neither one of those things. There was this sort of small battle that happens, but there's really no general resolution. Hmm. So. Yeah. Um, huh. Yeah, but I've never read them. They have witches. They have the bears. They have... Bears voiced by Ian McKellen in the movie. Yeah. And different bears voiced by Ian McShane. I think it's just... Is that who's doing the bear... Who's being the bear on the television show? I think I looked it up. It's not on anybody that I reckon, anybody I recognize. I know that... But I think what's interesting is that... What I was saying before before I got on this tangent about these diamond-shaped spines. Um, they make it seem like Lord Azrael is the hero of the series. But I think it turns out that he's actually one of the villains. And that's why I think it's going to be interesting to see James McAvoy playing this character. Because Daniel Craig played him as this, like, you know, heroic dad who was, like, lost in the, like, Antarctic looking for the secret of dust. But then it turns out that he's just, like, a megalomaniac who wants to tear down God. It almost feels like James McAvoy is typecast. Like, he was Professor X. Like, that's the same deal where it's, like, seemingly benevolent fatherly figure who turns out to be... 
more sort of morally twisted than you would initially imagine them to be and are willing to do some pretty uh, fucked up things to advance his agenda. But I think we talked about this. I think the whole concept of this, like, the demons that are, like, their souls and then when they're children, their souls can transform into different animals and then once they reach adulthood, they solidify their demon as a representation of themselves and then that helps them for the rest of their lives. And I think, like, one of the things that kind of made me cringe a little bit was this sort of stereotype of where he would apply certain good animals and bad animals to people. So, like, police officers are, like, Doberman pinchers mm-hmm. and, like... Or is that society doing that? Well, we, Ooh, you have a Doberman pincher demon. I guess you gotta be a police officer. Or, like, if you have, like... Wake up, sheeple demons. Yeah. But I think, like, he... Like, we talked about he's using the sort of old Greek version of the word mm-hmm. demons to sort of represent this, like, godly assistant. Sure. And I think, like, there's a whole part in the second book where Will is from you know, modern day England and they don't have those. So he has to go through this complete manifestation of going into the underworld and ripping his soul out and leaving it on the side of the river sticks. And then at some point he's re he's reconnected with his soul, but now his soul has been outside of his body. So now his soul is an animal. And then, so then he becomes similar to Lear. So it's very kind of like, sure. It's very weird. Okay. I mean, I can't tell you if it's good or bad. There's so many, like, plot holes and problems. Sounds bad. But I think, like, every time that there's a fantasy series, people think that it's going to be, like, epic, like, some of the other iconic epic fantasy series. Like, not everything is going to be, like, Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. Or And I think he tries to take, like, all Harry the... Potter like, seems like it has a lot of the same problems that yes. this thing does. But I think he takes a lot of, like, the plot devices from a lot of, like, 60s and 70s fantasy novels. Like, there's a lot of, like, wrinkle in time kind Mm. of fluffiness. And there's, like, so many different, like, tropes that he uses. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. It's complicated. Sure. Sounds complicated. (laughs) Got a lot of rolling around on seed pods and <laughs> got to tear your soul out and turn into what is what animal does the soul turn into? Some type of cat. Oh, that's boring. What if your demon is like a blue whale and you can't go anywhere? Well, the fishermen have aquatic animals, and that's mm-hmm. why they live their life on the sea. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. Cool. Well. That's all I got. I spent a lot. I spent more time than I needed to analyzing his dark materials. How dark were his materials? Though? Uh, they were pretty dank. <laughs> his dank materials. <laughs> That's the gritty reboot. Uh, the, <laughs> the amber uh, vape rig. Uh, okay, cool. <laughs> anything else? Or are we good? I don't think there's anything can top that. Are you reading anything good? Well, I just finished reading Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino. That's that pretty like, interesting. Sounds a lot better than... So, Invisible Cities is a... Huh. It's 
structured as like a fictionalized dialogue between Marco Polo and Gang and uh, Kublai Khan. Of course. And it's like a riff on the travels of Marco Polo. And so the bulk of the book is Polo describing these cities that may or may not exist, and maybe that doesn't matter, to Kublai Khan. And then intercut with them having conversations. And the whole thing is kind of this meditation on like memory and perception and the nature of reality and how reality relates to our perceptions and our memories and these like they continually walk around these kind in these kind of circles around like do these cities exist does it matter if they exist does any city exist can you fully comprehend a city if you describe a city are you actually describing it like the limits of human language and stuff like that uh it's pretty cool i dug it a lot this is when was this written the 70s i think do you think this had Early any 70s. influence on the Sandman? Oh, absolutely, 100%. The episode where he puts the city in the, in yes. the bell jar? There's a lot of that with Kublai Khan, like, because his character in the... It's not that it's, like, not that his and Marco Polo's characters are, like, super, like, well-defined or, like, important to the... There's no, like, plot or anything. But Kublai Khan's concerns throughout the book are on, like, how can I fully understand my empire... Will I ever fully understand my empire? Does my empire actually exist? There's like this whole part where Marco Polo arrives in at Kublai Khan's palace. He doesn't speak Mongolian. And so we get these vignettes interspersed with the city descriptions of how uh, Marco Polo initially tries to communicate with Kublai Khan. And there's like this whole thing about him like moving objects so that he can understand the descriptions through the relations of the objects and then they start to do to communicate by playing chess by arranging a chessboard and then they start playing chess with each other and like the process of playing chess generates these images in his mind of cities because of the rules they set up for the way that the chessboard communicates to him and there's this question of like well, do these cities that only exist in my mind through the understanding of the chessboard exist any more or less than the cities that Marco Polo describes to me with words, but which I'll never see or visit because they're in such remote parts of the empire? How does he think of something like this? It I don't seems know. So high concept. Yes, it's a very, it's it is very like. Uh, I mean, I think it just I think it follows from like reading the. I mean, he's an Italian writer. And, you know, I think that the... What is the actual book called? Is it called The Travels of Marco Polo? The one that Rusticello de, uh, de Pisa wrote that he it comes up in Sandman. Oh, right, right. In the Soft Places story. But there's that... That work, I think, is really culturally important to Italy. And I think a, a book like this sort of... I imagine follows from reading that work and thinking about these descriptions of these cities... And thinking about the relationship that Polo's descriptions have to the places in reality and and then you sort of make the logical leap of like, well, the places don't need to exist to describe them. And then you end up with something like Invisible Cities. Yeah, so The Travels of Marco Polo. Yeah, that's what I was From thinking. the 13th century by Ricello de Pisa. It's exactly like you said. So, And it's about his experiences... 
at the court of Kublai Kai from 1271 to 1295. And there's like this part in the book where Kublai Khan and I really like all the descriptions of the cities. There's like a city that exists only in the plumbing, like none of the buildings exist, but all the plumbing and the water features that were attached to the buildings are still there. And there's like, you know, a city that is slowly building another city out of all of its garbage that it gets rid of. And it's like, which was the real city, the garbage city or the not garbage city? And there's like one city where when a person dies, they carry their body down into a catacombs below the city and arrange them in a like a a giant life-size diorama made out of all the dead of the city and then the city of the living and the city of the dead reflect each other and then the city of the living starts to be a reflection of the city of the dead and stuff like that and then i like all of those but i actually think my favorite parts are the dialogues between kublai khan and marco polo there's this one where kublai khan is like you've told me about all these cities but like why don't you ever just tell me about venice and Marco Polo's like, uh, well, you see, every time I tell you about a city, I'm telling you about Venice. Oh, And then it's like this idea of like, you know, like, how do you perceive things? Like, are you, when you're describing a city, are you, what you're, are you actually describing the way that city differs from an idealized city that exists in your head? And is that idealized city like the city of your birth or not? And all, all sorts of stuff like that. I, I highly recommend it. It's weird, but it's really short. It's very pleasant. I mean, it's almost a collection of poetry more than a novel. Uh, but yeah, I think it, it's only like a few, it's like a hundred pages, maybe less than that. I don't know. It's pretty short. Interesting. So I read that. I'm rereading Motherless Brooklyn in anticipation of the movie. I'm almost done that. Uh, that's really good. But I think we should, we'll talk about that more when the movie comes out. I think so. Uh, I just reread Grendel by John Gardner. Which is, we've recorded an episode about it in the previous version of this podcast. If I can find the recording, I might upload it at some point. Uh, but for people who don't know, Grendel is kind of a postmodern retelling of Beowulf from the perspective of Grendel. But it's very existential and philosophical. It's very in Grendel's head. And it's about how he perceives the world and he, as he kind of like flits around through these different philosophical viewpoints and struggles with like solipsism and all this stuff and then leading up to his death at the hands of Beowulf uh, and it's really good so yeah I, rec- I would recommend checking out Invisible Cities and Grendel Not, and either of them are terribly lengthy reads so I think that's a lot of stuff to deal with sure uh, so next episode we're gonna do uh, Sam Man Overture and that will be that'll be our last Handman comic. I mean, maybe at some point we'll go back and do one of the collections of short stories or whatever. But for the time being, that's our last Handman comic, and it'll be our last Vertigo comic for a while too. And then perhaps we'll talk about the the fate of Vertigo uh, in that episode. A standalone. Yeah, it's like a prequel. I a think prequel. it's like what was he doing right? But he's referenced like Morpheus references a couple times, like some kind of big. Like, what's the word I'm looking for? Catastrophic event that preceded his imprisonment in the bottle at the beginning of the story. And I believe Overture is the story of that event. Okay. And then it'll be December. And I guess you want want to talk about what we're doing for December here? special holiday treat. Yeah, we're doing a double shot of Santa Claus content for you. 
but not neither are terribly uh, religious Santa Claus content. So if you if you don't celebrate Christmas, I think you should be fine here. Uh, so first, we're gonna for our novella. Uh, I've referenced The Wizard of Oz earlier in this, but we're gonna do the what? It's Life, Life and Adventures of Santa Claus by L. Frank Baum, right? Not Life and Times. I think I want to call it Life and Times. Yeah, but I think it's it's Life and Adventures. Um, yeah, the Life and Adventures of Santa Claus by L. Frank Baum. Uh, is that available in the public domain? That is in the public domain. Yes, so you can get that for Project Gutenberg or whatever. Uh, that one's definitely not hard to find. So we're going to talk about that um, for the first episode in December, and then for the second episode in December, we're going to talk about. Claus or Klaus, K L K L A U S, uh, by Grant Morrison and Dan Mora, I believe is the artist. Yeah, Dan Mora. Uh, that's a seven issue miniseries uh, that is basically a reimagining of the myth of Santa Claus. It's an origin story for Santa Claus in the manner of like a superhero comic, but not exactly. Uh, I think that'll be fun. That's it's a little bit uh, maybe goofier than the other comics we've done before, but I think it'll be a good time. Well, I haven't read any Grant Morrison, so I'm excited to get into that. It's a weird place to start. Is it? <laughs> I like to start at the weirdest part, so that's good. I don't know. This is I wouldn't say I call it the weirdest part because it's Grant Morrison. He's written some weird stuff, but it is a weird place to start with his Santa Claus comic. But I think it'll it's going to be good stuff. So yeah, so Sandman Overture next episode. Then December, we're doing the Life Adventures of Santa Claus, and then Klaus. Then it's January, and we'll talk about what we're doing in January later. We definitely know what it is, though. No way we don't know. <laughs> so, uh, spoiler alert, stay tuned, I guess. Bye, everyone. Bye.